spiritual leader who famously led a campaign of nonviolent resistance that freed India from British rule um, midway through the last century. But Gandhi uh, is a fascinating guy, and he had some interesting ideas about the spiritual life. Um, this leader of the movement to free India of the British yoke did, in fact, sleep with young females. Um, sleep as in literal sleep, not euphemistic sleep. It's like slept with them. Um, and what's more, I'll put this delicately, both parties were often sans clothes at the time. So during the winter of 1946, it came out that Gandhi was bunking nightly with his 19-year-old grandniece named Manu. And um, at first it was explained that this was simply an effort to stay warm during the winter chill. And I'm sure people are like, dude, get a blanket, right? Get a blanket. Um, but Gandhi soon acknowledged there was more to it. He was testing his vow of chastity in thought and deed. If he could spend the night in a woman's embrace without feeling sexual stirrings, it would demonstrate that he had conquered his carnal impulses and truly become God's eunuch. It turned out that Manu was not his first purity lab partner. He'd also um, had this experiment going on with another young woman in his extended family that started when she was 18 years old. Gandhi had some unusual beliefs that were fueling this, unusual from a Christian perspective. He believed that sex for pleasure was sinful. And for that matter, he also thought that eating chocolate was sinful, I'm told. Um, he thought that sexual attraction between, between men and women was unnatural and that husband and wife should live together as brother and sister, having sex only for purposes of procreation. He swore off sex at age 36 and required a similar vow of his disciples. So, what do you think of Gandhi's approach to the spiritual life? Good idea? Bad idea. Okay, if you said the latter, I hope you did right? Um, you are in really good company because what I want us to see today from Colossians 2, the back end, is that the Apostle Paul will soundly condemn practices and approaches to the spiritual life like these. Now, in, in our passage in the back of Colossians 2, he's going to use a word twice to describe these kind of practices. He calls them asceticism. Um, and the idea seems to be describing man-made practices that are useless, even harmful in the spiritual life. It is the self-imposed embracing of and even, even intentionally engaging in suffering or deprivation of pleasure or in, like in Gandhi's case, uh, embracing temptation in order to strengthen your faith that by these actions of deprivation, your faith would grow stronger. One writer described asceticism as piling up negatives in hopes of gaining a positive. Now, most commonly, these ascetic practices are man-made and are not prescribed for us in Scripture. Um, this practice, these ascetic practices, asceticism can be 
uh, made to fit in a larger bucket of spiritual practices that's sometimes called legalism. Um, And Pastor John Piper describes legalism in two ways. He says, the first meaning of legalism is the terrible mistake of treating biblical standards of conduct as regulations to be kept by our own power in order to earn God's favor. That's the first way he thinks about legalism that I found helpful. The second meaning of legalism, he says, is this. The erecting of specific requirements of conduct beyond the teaching of scripture and making adherence to them the means by which a person is qualified for full participation in the local family of God, the church. Maybe it'll help to think of the spiritual life like this. Think of the spiritual life like a dartboard, okay? You may have one at your house, we have one at ours. Um, In the spiritual life, we would think of it like this. We would think that, um, let me see if I can figure out how to do this, there we go. Uh, In the spiritual life, Christ would be the center. Christ would be uh, the bullseye. That's what we're aiming at, Christ. To grow, to love, to know, to follow, to obey, to share Christ, right? That would be the center. That's, that's the objective. Um, you could say there's another inner ring here maybe, right here. And these are the good commands and ways of God that are intended to pull us into the center who is Christ, right? These are found in scripture for us. Um, you know, don't lie, don't steal, don't covet, be generous, uh, be loving, all these commands, love your neighbor, those are the good commands of God and the ways of God uh, that are intended to draw us into Christ at the center. But if you go all the way out here, way out here along the edge, right, along the perimeter of the board, um, there we would find rules or ways that either we devise or others devise for us that are intended to help us move to the center, right? Often these act like rules around the rules that God gave us to protect us from violating God's rules. So um, here's an example I ran across in part this week. Uh, A woman and her husband made a decision that they were not going to watch any R-rated movies in order to avoid all the stuff, all the junk that's sometimes in R-rated movies, right? Uh, Violence, lust, whatever it would happen to be. So they decided in order to help them keep God's ways, they were gonna make a rule out here on the edge, no R-rated movies. And that that really could be a helpful decision and a wise one um, in many cases. But the problem with those kind of rules is when they take on the weight and the scope of God's rules, right? So what happens when this lady is at coffee with another lady in her small group and she finds out that her friend has just watched an R-rated movie? What is this? What does this mean? Let's say she watched Amistad, right? The movie about slave ship, it's rated R. Well, she, if she's confused about whether these are her rules or God's rules, um, she may begin to wonder 
even judge if this person could be a good Christian or not. Maybe even wonder, is this person a Christian at all? I know that illustration isn't perfect, but I hope, I hope it helps you see the distinguishment between Christ at the center and God's good rules that help us move towards him and ours outside that are at least intended to help us in that process. But as one pastor put it, when a good thing becomes a God thing, that's a bad thing. So her rule started out as a good thing to help her keep from falling into sin, right? But when it's described with the same power as God's ways and has the same breadth of application, it's no longer just her rule, her friends need to keep her rule as well, then it actually becomes a bad thing. And we tend to do this all the time. Um, Author John Ortberg writes about it. He calls the edge of the board, as I'm describing it, boundary markers, it's a term sociologists use. where you mark out who's in and who's out of your group or your faith. He says, conforming to boundary markers, the edge of the board, too often substitutes for authentic transformation. He says, the church I grew up in had its boundary markers. A prideful or resentful pastor could have kept his job, but if ever the pastor was caught smoking a cigarette, he would have been fired. Not because anyone in the church actually thought smoking was a worse sin than pride or resentment, but because smoking defined who was in our subculture and who wasn't. It was a boundary marker. And as I was growing up, having a quiet time became a boundary marker, a measure of spiritual growth. If someone had asked me about my spiritual life, I would immediately think, have I been having regular and lengthy quiet time? My initial thought was not. Am I growing more loving toward God and towards people? Boundary markers change from culture to culture, but the dynamic remains the same. If people do not experience authentic transformation, then their faith will deteriorate into a search for the boundary markers that masquerade as evidence of a changed life. So that a good thing becomes in our mind a God thing when they become an end rather than a means to the end who is Christ, that then becomes a bad thing. And the Apostle Paul, in our passage today, is about to show us why that's the case. Let me read you today's passage in its entirety. It's only seven verses. Starts in verse 16 of chapter 2. You can follow along on the screen or on your uh, devices or in your Bibles as, as you can. Therefore, Paul writes, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is God's good word for us. Thanks be to God, right? Let's pray together. Lord, help us see in this uh, 
ancient and difficult little passage, um, how good Christ is and how important it is that we cling to him for life and godliness. So Lord, help us today know the freedom that is ours in Christ and be all the more devoted to him, we pray. Amen. Amen. So, Paul is in prison, writing to a church in a place called Colossae. Folks, he's likely never even met in person. And this was a good church, right? It's a good church. And Paul, in this section of the letter he's writing to them, has two major concerns. There's teaching going on around them that leads to a faith that does not grow and a faith that has no power. Could either of those describe your faith? A faith that is not growing, a faith that has no power. If those describe your faith, then this message this morning could be of, be of the utmost importance for you. What seems to have tipped Paul off to this concern is that there were certain teachers who were evidently judging others wrongly. He alludes to it twice in this short passage. Verse 16, he says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. And then just a couple of verses later, verse 18, he says, let no one disqualify you. The same basic idea. Now, clearly, not all judging is problematic, right? Jesus encouraged us to judge. In one place, he said, do not judge by appearances, but judge Jesus says, judge with right judgment. So judgment is permissible. It's even essential at points. But this judgment going on in the church that Paul is writing to is troubling to him. And if you drop down to verse 21 and 22 of our passage, you'll see why. He says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teaching. So Paul's concerned because they are judging if we go back to that dartboard illustration, based on the edge, not on the center, on man's rules, not on our love for, devotion to, service to, or likeness of Christ in our lives, right? The regulations that they are basing these judgments on are man-made and they center around things like diet and days. Look, look at verse 16. Paul explains here why these things are not helpful, maybe even harmful to us. He says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, diet, or with regard to festival or a new moon or Sabbath, days, diet and days. And these things that Paul's listing here, uh, many scholars see connections back to the Old Testament to Jewish laws and practices which Paul has labored elsewhere to make plain are not binding on Christians as law anymore. In Galatians, Paul would go so far as to write, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Instead, we rely on Christ who kept and fulfilled that law for us. Jesus said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. Now this teaching, this doctrine is complicated, but the result is that we as the church are free from keeping the myriad of Old Testament regulations regarding the very things Paul's writing about, about diet and about days. But there were people in Colossae 
who were judging the church, people in the church, looking down on them, even questioning their faith perhaps, on the basis of these Old Testament laws that really were no longer binding upon them. And Paul says why in verse 17, he said, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So they are mere shadows, not the thing itself. They're merely pointers to the substance. And the Old Testament laws involving diet and days pointed forward to Christ and they found their fulfillment in Him. And so this false teaching that's going on here evidently had some measure of a Jewish flavor to it as though they were asking followers of Jesus to keep those Old Testament laws in order to have a right standing with God or or to be truly spiritual. Pastor Sam Storms writes, he says, Paul tells us that we should not let such people judge us as inferior or disqualify us from attaining the ultimate prize, that is fellowship and acceptance with God, simply because we don't follow their instructions. After all, he says, Old Testament religious festivals and holy days were a mere shadow pointing to Jesus Christ in whom they are all fulfilled. In other words, he says, if we have him, we don't need them. So these teachers were adding rules. In their case, it seems that they were resurrecting Old Testament laws that are no longer binding on New Testament believers and then judging them based on that standard. And they weren't just using diet and days to judge. In verse 18, there's some more things that we see. He says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on a detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. So here the list of add-ons to the Christian life gets a little crazier, right? It includes the worship of angels and, and visions. And this may be why back in chapter one, Paul belabored the supremacy of Jesus over all things, all beings so powerfully. Let me remind you of that passage. He says of Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so the Jesus that Paul describes is without question supreme over any other spiritual entity in the universe, over angels or demons, all authorities. He is the center. He's to be the bullseye of our spiritual life and our quest to know him, to love him, to serve him, obey him, to honor and worship him, to become like him, to share him. These are the center of who we are as Christ followers, Christians. So Paul reminds them in chapter one, he recaptivates them once again with the beauty and power and the unrivaled supremacy of Jesus. So Paul's warning the church against listening to false teaching. He's warning us 
teaching that lures us to focus on the edge, not the center, who is Christ. And he's building on what Noah taught us last week from verse 8. Listen to the similar language. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So it appears that angel worship may have been part of the mix that these false teachers were, were teaching and then using to judge others who, who didn't have that same uh, participation. And angel worship, as strange as it sounds, is still a thing today, right? Um, there's a lady named Nora Ephron. She's a writer and director of a movie a while back called Michael. It's a story of a flawed angel who acts like Cupid in bringing star-crossed lovers together and even raises a dog from the dead. And these are her comments. What people can't stand is everyone wants to believe God notices you, that he notices the details. The horrible truth, she says, is that he probably doesn't notice. He's got more important things to do, but angels do notice. You know, they make the tow truck come when you have a flat tire. And all of a sudden, a good thing, angels, has become a God thing, and that is a bad thing, as angels are trust to the center, to the place where only God and Christ belong, right? And I suppose the same could be said of the visions that he talks about here, right? Not all visions are troubling. Paul himself said he had visions in 1 Corinthians. And the New Testament, though, doesn't require visions as part of the, the Christian life. Nowhere does it do that. And in this case, these spiritual experiences, these visions and such, these teachers were talking about, they were evidently judging others who did not have those. And so rather than these visions humbling them as true visions of Christ would, they were puffing them up with pride, causing them to judge and look down on those who didn't share the experience. In verse 18, you see that language. They were going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by their sensuous minds. Where Paul starts that list, you can see it there, is with that word asceticism, right? Piling up negatives, hoping to get a positive, right? Depriving yourself often of pleasurable things or pursuing suffering intentionally so as to grow spiritually as though self-inflicted sorrows could somehow yield the fruit of the Spirit in us. Professor, Professor David Garland writes about how sneaky these things can be coming even into what we believe. He says the problem is we can begin to worship the rules or our theological constructions more than we worship Christ. This process inevitably results in an ugly, smug arrogance and exacerbates the divisions between us rather than working to bring about reconciliation. And all of a sudden, the edge matters more than the center a good thing becomes a God thing, and that is a bad thing. And again, Paul's list is a mixed bag of things, right? Angel worship is always a problem, but things like fasting or visions are not necessarily bad in and of themselves, but when options become essentials, when you're required to do that which Scripture doesn't require, that's when we begin to veer into legalism. And Paul's point 
As one writer said, don't let anyone throw you out of the ball game for allegedly having violated rules that God has never imposed. The center, we focus on the center. Verse 19, that's what Paul's after. He says, they're not holding fast to the head. That's Christ. From whom the whole body, which is the church, is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. This is the heart of their problem, right? Somehow all this emphasis on rule keeping and having exotic spiritual experiences would supplant their connection to Christ rather than enrich it. They were becoming disconnected from the center. Rather than focusing on the center, they began to focus on the edge. And a number of these practices, again, aren't necessarily trouble in and of themselves. They can be useful to help us draw to Christ, but when they supplant Christ, and the emphasis is on keeping the rules or having the experience, and that's disconnected from growing in love for Jesus and others, then these things start to inhibit the growth in Christians and the church rather than fueling it. And so in light of verse 19, are you holding fast to Christ? Is he your great trust and hope? Is he the center, the bullseye of your spiritual life? Do your spiritual practices, even things like Bible reading and prayer, take you to him? Do they draw you to him? And are you steadfast in those practices as a means of pursuing Christ? in prayer, in the word, in meaningful, high-priority community with God's people. See, this is how we grow. This is how the church grows, with Christ at the center. Paul would write in Ephesians a very similar thing. He says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds up itself in love. Paul makes it clear here that we need each other to grow. We need each other to grow up into him who is the head, into Christ, as we speak the truth in love to one another, building ourselves, our community up in love. Again, Professor Garland says, we cannot grow on our own without Christ. We cannot grow on our own without other Christians. Therefore, we only fool ourselves if we think we can find our meaning, purpose, and significance for God through an isolated contemplation of religious truths that only comes in a community of believers bound to Christ and to one another. Paul's great concern is that this edge-focused faith based on the rules and ways of men would lead to a faith that wasn't growing. Is your faith growing? Are you holding fast to Christ these days, engaging in God's good practices that draw you near to Christ steadfastly? Or is your heart wondering? Is, is your pursuit flagging? Is your love for Jesus, lessening, daily reading from a biography of Jesus in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, take your pick, would be a great place to reestablish Christ 
central to your faith. But Paul's focus now turns from a concern over this edge-focused spiritual life that inhibits growth in Christ to the same man-made kind of teachings that have no power over sin and temptation. Look at verse 22. If with Christ, he says, you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. Paul's theology has kind of been unpacked uh, this way by one writer. They said that Paul believes that we really did die with Christ. We were buried with him and raised with him. Just as all humans are appointed by God to be with Adam in his sin, so he has appointed all believers to be with Christ in the events that reversed and more than canceled the effects of Adam's sin. We enjoy the benefits that Christ has won in his death because of our union with Christ. But Paul's concern in this verse is not simply to remind us of our death with Christ, but to indicate the effects of that experience. We have died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world. The spiritual forces in this world are no longer our Lord's because we share in the death of Christ and its power. So think of it like this. Say you live in an apartment and you have a terrible landlord. And that landlord represents these, the spiritual forces of this world. He's abusive, he's mean, he's intrusive, he's, un- he's everything a terrible landlord could be. But someone buys the building, right? That means he's no longer your landlord. You no longer owe the old landlord any rent. You're free from their tyranny. You don't have to submit to their regulations. If he tries to extract a damage or a late fee from you, he has no authority. If he tries to enact a curfew, he tries to get your car towed, he has no authority. He is no longer your landlord. You don't need to comply anymore to their authority. And so by the, the death of Christ that purchases us as his, we are free. We are free in Christ from these elemental spirits and their authority. In verse 23, he says, these, these rules have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So all these rules and regulations and giving up right? The spiritual experience all look so spiritual. And we've been trained to think that way for generations and generations and generations. That if you have more rules, that's more spiritual. Um, I ran across a fascinating account uh, this week. If you go back about 50 years, it was not uncommon in Bible-believing churches to have in their doctrinal statement or their membership covenant that if you wanted to be a member of the church, you could not partake or sell alcohol. If you wanted to be a member of Christ's church, 
you could not partake of or sell alcohol. Um, now that, that regulation, that's one of those perimeter regulations, right, that was made up to help people not fall into the sin in the center or near the center of God's instructions about not getting drunk. But when that becomes, someone's personal conviction becomes God's conviction for everyone, then a good thing has become a God thing, and that's a bad thing. And those regulations forced upon us by men are of no value to us in fighting temptation. In fact, they can have the opposite effect. There's a guy named Robert Cialdini. He's a researcher and expert in the theory of persuasion. And he did an experiment at one of our national parks called Petrified Forest National Park in Arizona. The park had this problem. And they put up this warning sign. Your heritage is being vandalized every day by theft. Losses of petrified wood of 14 tons a year, mostly a small piece at a time. So people were stealing the petrified wood from this national park as souvenirs. The sign plainly appealed to the visitor's sense of moral outrage, and Cialdini wanted to know if this appeal was effective. So they ran a little experiment. They seeded various trails throughout the forest with loose pieces of petrified wood ready for the stealing. And on some trails, they posted a warning sign not to steal, and others, other trails got no sign. The result? The trails with the warning sign had nearly three times more theft than the trails with no warning sign. I don't know if it's the power of suggestion or if it's the lure of the forbidden, who knows. But mere signs, man-made rules and regulations and practices don't have the power by themselves to free us from sin. Only holding fast to Christ, Christ himself at the center gives us that hope. So how are you fighting sin these days. We all are tempted. What are you hoping in to stem the tide of sin in your life? Are you just relying on religious activities, even good ones like this? Or are you allowing those to press you deeper into Christ and holding to Jesus desperately to set you free from those things, to protect you from temptation? It's interesting, back in 1927, there's a famous director, Cecil Cecil B. DeMille. He cast uh, British-born actor H.B. Warner as Jesus in his famous silent film, King of Kings. So Warner, who 19 years later played the druggist in It's a Wonderful Life, was kept on a short leash during the filming of King of Kings. Cecil B. DeMille was concerned that any behavior that the lead actor deemed inconsistent with the image of Christ would result in negative publicity for the film. So as a result, DeMille enforced strict measures to ensure that Warner kept up a good Jesus image, or what DeMille thought would be a good representation of Jesus. Both Warner and his co-star, Dorothy Cumming, who played Mary, the mother of Jesus, had to sign agreements that barred them for five years from appearing in any film roles that might compromise their holy screen images. During the filming, Warner was driven to the set with blinds drawn. He wore a black veil as he was delivered to the set. DeMille separated Warner from other cast members, even forcing him to eat alone every day. Warner couldn't play cards, go to ball games, ride in a convertible, or go swimming. 
because, you know, Jesus wouldn't do any of those things. Uh, but unfortunately, the article says, the regimen of rules and regulations didn't make Warner more holy. Instead, all of the pressure to be more Christ-like without having the power or forgiveness of Jesus at the center seemed to drive Warner over the edge. And during the production of King of Kings, rather than act more like Jesus, Warner relapsed into his addiction to alcohol. No, we're not against religious acts. Obviously, we're doing them right now. Neither is the New Testament. But are those Jesus substitutes or do they press you towards him? Have your good things become God things that you depend on independent of Jesus and thereby become bad things for your soul? See, Jesus, Paul is saying again and again and again, Jesus is better. Jesus is better than any other hope. He's better than any religious activity we do to try to earn God's favor. He's better than rules we make up to fight off temptation. In every way, Jesus is better. I've got five minutes to convince you of one thing. Altogether, it's 13 letters, three words, and one complete sentence. And I hope you never forget it. In fact, I hope it haunts you. I hope you always remember these 13 letters, these three words, and this one complete sentence. Jesus is better. You say, better than what? I say, better than everything else. He's better than any passing dream you might be chasing after. He's better than any worldly ambition that may have captured your devotion. He's better than anything that could distract you from doing what you were created to do. Jesus is better. He's better than a six-figure salary. He's better than a three-story home. He's better than a trophy wife, a job promotion, and a Caribbean cruise. Jesus is better. He's better than a starting position on the football team. He's better than a lead role in the spring musical. He's better than a 4.0 GPA, a college scholarship, and a nomination to homecoming court. Jesus is better. He's better than money, cars, clothes, sex, entertainment, achievement, and popularity. He's better than anything this world can offer you. Jesus is better. He's better than any person that has ever walked this earth. Wiser than Gandhi and smarter than Einstein. He's more holy than Muhammad and more spiritual than Buddha. He's more eloquent than Shakespeare and more creative than Mozart. He's more powerful than Napoleon and more compassionate than Mother Teresa. Jesus is better. The Bible says he's better than Adam, better than Abraham, better than Moses, David, and Mary. He's better than the angels, better than the demons, better than any prophet, priest, or saint. Jesus is better. And there will be times when it's hard to believe. Times when it doesn't feel like Jesus is better. The world will hate you, your flesh will fight you, and the devil will lie to you. Storms will come. You're gonna face disappointment, deception, 
betrayal, rejection, regret, sickness, and death. You're gonna feel tired, empty, brokenhearted, scared, and alone. But don't forget in the darkness what you learned in the light. Jesus is better. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the Prince of peace and the light of the world. He's the friend of sinners and the enemy of Satan. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He is the way and the truth and the life. Jesus is better. And if you really, truly believe it, it's going to cost you. You're going to deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow him. You're going to help the poor, swallow your pride, and love your enemies. You're gonna read your Bible when you'd rather watch TV. You're gonna pray when you'd rather sleep. You're gonna serve when you'd rather be served. And you're gonna speak up when you'd rather be silent. But when it's all said and done, you won't regret it. You'll say, it was worth it. Jesus is better. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. Jesus is better. So my hope for you isn't that you're safe, successful, and well-liked. Sometimes those are the very things that get in the way of you learning the one thing you can't afford to ignore. But Jesus is better. So if being unsafe, unsuccessful, and unliked is what it's going to take for you to see that Jesus is better, well then I'll pray that your life is filled with danger, failure, and persecution. Whatever it takes, I want you to know that Jesus is better. 13 letters.